Our text this morning is Philippians chapter 1, beginning at the very end of verse 18 and going through verse 21. Again, for context, I will begin at verse 15. If you would please now give attention to the reading of God's holy word. It is inerrant, it is authoritative, and it is sufficient. Philippians chapter 1. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you would open up your word to us this morning, that you would show us the Lord Jesus Christ in all his magnificence, that you would show us our duty as your children, and that you would encourage us along the way. We ask this in the magnificent name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. What gives a person worth? What makes a person honorable? Throughout the ages, men and women and even children have sought to be honored by others, to be valued by others, to have their worth shown. In Paul's day, that might appear in this kind of context. Someone might spend extravagant amounts of money on a holiday, literally a day off for everyone in the city of Rome with a magnificent feast and prizes and presents for everyone so that they might hear people as they walk down the street say, Oh, isn't that Antonius a marvelous, honorable man? Look at all of the things that he's given to us. Others in that day and age would have sought it through service, especially in the military. Generals would go and would do great deeds of daring, great feats of accomplishment, so that they might come home in a victory parade, in a chariot, before all the people of Rome as they honored him almost as a god. But you see, when a man would do that, they had a second man in the chariot who would whisper in his ear as he went down the street, Remember, you are mortal. Remember, you are mortal. Because you see, honor can be fleeting if it's sought in the wrong way. You see, even nowadays, people seek honor through the spending of money, through the building up of fame and accomplishment, through desiring to have other people see them, not as they really are, but rather as something that they wish to be. You don't need to be rich or a general to do this. You could be a second or a third grader. 
You could be a retiree. You could be a mom. Paul here is describing for us how honor is found in life, how meaning is found in life, and especially here, I think, in the context of the Christian church. You see, real honor and value in life is found in seeing the work of God in our lives, not in what we think we have accomplished, not in what we think we have done. And so this morning, I would like us to see three things. The first is I would like us to see the Lord's work on us. The Lord's work on us. And then secondly, the Lord's work through us. Both on us and then through us. And then finally, the Lord's work in us. In our very lives. So let's begin then by looking at the end of verse 18 and see the Lord's work on or upon us. You see, God is a sovereign being. He is not something that we think up. He is not a person who exists for our good pleasure or for our satisfaction. God is in charge and in control. And the first thing that we see here from this text is that God brings His will upon us. He works on us by bringing His will to fruition. You notice that Paul rejoices here in this text. We've been looking at this and wondering how can someone who is in jail with a Roman soldier chained to him 24 hours a day and with supposed friends who are preaching hoping to hurt him, how can he rejoice and be joyful? There's so many other things Paul could desire to be doing. He might be miserable that his life is wasting away. He could be planting churches. He could be gaining converts. He could be establishing the church. But instead here, circumstances appear to be against him. But you see, Paul's joy is found in seeing God's will manifested in his life. His joy is in the advance and proclamation of the gospel. You see, because that is God's will. That his word would go forward and it would not return unto him void. God's will is that his word would be established in the hearts of his people. But there's something else here that I think is important. Because if we are honest with ourselves, sometimes as Reformed Presbyterians, we can say to ourselves, God's will be done. And we leave it there. But you see, Paul doesn't. Paul says, I rejoice because this is God's will. But he says, yes, and I will rejoice. You see, Paul makes a conscious choice and decision to rejoice. To line his will up with God's. You see, his joy in God's will is not merely in the bare seeing of God's will. He enters into the sovereignty of God and says, Thy will be done and I will rejoice in it. This is where true joy is found. In not kicking against the goads. In not resigning yourself to fate. But rather seeing the Lord and His will as being good, just, and loving. And deciding. Paul is very emphatic here. He doesn't just say, I'm rejoicing now because my circumstances are such. He says, I will rejoice in the future. And he's very emphatic about it. This yes and in the text is a specific type of grammatical construction. It hooks up the previous sentence with what will follow. He's explaining why he rejoices. He is bubbling over with joy. 
That question then comes to you. Can you determine to rejoice in God's will? Can you determine to rejoice in what He is bringing in your life, whether they be challenges or blessings? Can you rejoice knowing that God is in control, that God is omniscient, that God is omnipotent, that God is all-loving? You see, if we can rejoice in God's will, then our circumstances fade away. Our standing before others fades away. And we desire to see what God sees in our lives. But you see, God brings His will not just only in our rejoicing, in lining us up with His will, but rather also He brings it in our deliverance. You see, Paul rejoices because he knows what is happening will turn out for his deliverance. Paul expects to be delivered. Now, commentators spill a lot of ink over this word deliverance. It's actually the same word that is used for salvation. It can mean salvation, it can mean deliverance, it can mean rescue. And some will say, well, obviously what Paul's concerned about here is he's going to get a get-out-of-jail-free card. He's happy because his parole is coming up. And others will say, no, 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 it doesn't have anything to do with that. Paul is rejoicing because at the last day, he will be saved. But in reality, I think Paul uses words just like you or I do. You ever use a word intending to get a double meaning? That's what Paul's doing here. You see, Paul is rejoicing because he knows that his deliverance from prison is at hand because God has ministry for him. He will say this later in the letter as he explains that he's excited to see the Philippians again. But Paul is also grounded in the fact that he expects a final deliverance at that last day. He expects God to vindicate him. How do we know this? Paul does something here that oftentimes we will do. You ever quote from someone without even realizing you're doing it? Maybe it's a friend or your spouse or a book that you've read over and over and over again and it just gets in your head and you use it over and over again. Paul's language here where he says, this will turn out for my deliverance is word for word the Greek translation of Job 13, 16. Exactly the same. And you know Job's context, don't you? Job is the paragon of suffering. He suffered all kinds of being deprived, having physical ailments, tragedies. And in the midst of that, he says, I know this will turn out for my deliverance because I will be vindicated before God. You see, Paul says, God will vindicate me. Paul says that God will deliver me at the last. And so he can be confident in his preaching in the midst of his difficulties. As a matter of fact, he says, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. It's the same kind of no that we looked before at verse 16. Do you remember the difference between verse 16 and verse 17? Verse 16, the no there was a sure, founded knowledge. Verse 17 was a, I suppose, or I think. Here Paul is absolutely sure that the circumstances that he is in will turn out for his deliverance. It's because he knows God is sovereignly in control. All of his life, the this here, 
Everything that he is experiencing will turn out right because it is in God's hands. It's kind of like reading a Dickens novel. Did you ever do that? You read and there's all kinds of facts that come out here and there and wherever. And by the end of the novel, Charles Dickens always ties every little detail together. What someone was wearing, where they were born, what they said, what they thought. He weaves it all together in a master story that he is in complete control of. You see, that is the kind of control that God has. He is in complete control of your story, pulling all of the spare ends, everything that you think doesn't matter, perhaps, or is just happening, is a part of the sovereign plan of God. Missing a bus, getting a cold, hitting a home run, reading a book. God uses these events in our lives to shape us and mold us into the person He would have us be. Do you recognize God's control in your life and in your midst? If you do, you can rejoice. You can see that God is bringing His will about in your life. God is in control and He works on us not only by bringing His will to our life, but also by bringing His provision. You'll notice He does it in two fashions here. Paul says, I know that this will turn out through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. This will happen because of the work of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. This word here, help, can have two meanings as well. It can either mean that the Spirit's help, that is, all that He gives to us, all that the Holy Spirit provides for us in wisdom, in knowledge, in sanctification. The work of the Spirit in our life is the provision of God. But it also can mean the supply of the Spirit Himself. Not just the things that the Spirit brings to our life, but the very relationship that He has with us. The fact that He indwells us. This is the provision of God. This is the work of God in our midst, giving us His Spirit, that we might know Him, that we might love Him. And it's no coincidence that Paul calls Him here the Spirit of Christ, because the Spirit speaks the things of Christ. And who better to mold us into the image of Christ than the Spirit of Christ? But Paul also acknowledges that the work of God goes on in very practical ways as well. He does it in such a fashion that it may make us uncomfortable at first. He says, I know this will all come out through your prayers and through the help of the Spirit. You see, God's provision is also found in the prayers of His people. We may say to ourselves, well, that doesn't make much sense. If God's in control, if God is sovereign, if He is in charge, how can prayer make any difference? How can what one man or one woman does make a difference in our life? But you see, it does make a difference because it is a part of the provision of God. You see, the Christian is not someone who is just carried along on circumstances. The Christian is one who actively seeks help from God. And we find it in people. Real people in our midst. People sitting to the right of you. People sitting to the left of you. People sitting behind you. And in front of you, 
God is at work on us through the work of His people. And even as great a saint as Paul acknowledges that he needs prayer. That he can't make it without the prayers of the people. Because you see, those two things, the sovereignty of God and the work of the Spirit, and the prayers of the people are related. It shows us the importance of prayer. Because sovereignty doesn't negate prayer, it rather establishes it. We pray to the one who is in control. We pray to the one who honors his work. And so we go to him, seeking blessing on the lives of those around us. In your life, what place does prayer have? Is it something that you do because you're supposed to do it the first 20 minutes that you're awake of the day? Is it something you do because you're not supposed to eat unless you say the blessing? Is it something you do because you feel you need to go through a list? Or do you expect to be ushered into the throne room of the king of the universe and to petition him to use his mighty power to build up your church? That is the power of prayer. God's work is found on us. But God's work is also something that comes through us. God works not just on our lives, but through our lives. He does that by first bringing hope. Look at what Paul says. In verse 20, he says, As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body. Paul says, I have a hope that I will not be ashamed. Now, hope in the Bible is different from hope on Main Street or hope on the corner. You see, we use in common parlance the word hope to be something that we're not sure is going to happen. As a matter of fact, it may even be something we're sure is not going to happen. We may say to ourselves, you know, I hope the Astros win the World Series this year. Don't expect to see it. That's not hope in the Bible. You see, in the Bible, a hope is something you know is going to happen. You're just not sure when. But you have a certainty that hope will be Because that hope is underwritten by God having the future. In his hand. Maybe a better way to think about biblical hope is this. It's to think about a wife, a mother with child, about to give birth. You know it's going to happen. You're just not sure when. And if you're like me, if you're a new dad, what you do is you make your wife write down contractions for hours on end because you don't want to miss the time. Because you don't know when it's going to come. But you know for a certainty that it will come. That's what hope in the Bible is. We know it is about to happen. We just have to wait for the expectation to be realized. Where does your hope lie? Do you wish things would get better? Do you hope in a vague way that somehow God will smile upon you? 
Or do you hope to see the Lord Jesus Christ as He is because you are founded upon the promise of God that you know cannot lie and that earth itself cannot undo? That is a true and real biblical hope. And God brings that to us. He works that through us. And it creates in Paul and in us an eager expectation. He says, it is my eager expectation and hope. This word for eager expectation is very vivid. It's actually three Greek words shoved together into a big 50-cent word. It means taking the head and straining and looking away. In other words, focusing completely on one object to the exclusion of everything else. You might get the picture of someone straining their neck to look over a crowd to look at the object of their affection. It's the way in which perhaps at a wedding, everyone in the congregation turns to see the bride as she comes down. They're not looking at the flowers. They're certainly not looking at the groom. They're not looking at the walls. And even if someone's in their way, they move or they shake or they lift because they have to see that object that their mind is upon. That's what Paul is saying here. You see, his hope has made him confident, not anxious. He knows and he can strain with every nerve, as the hymnist says, to see the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, this kind of hope and expectation arises out of the experiences of life that God has given to Paul. If you'll turn with me for just a minute to Romans chapter 5, he explains that a bit. In Romans chapter 5, Paul explains how hope works. The beginning of verse 3, he says, More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, Paul here is giving you the secret to the Christian life. You see, sufferings, difficulties, circumstances are given to us by God that He might work through our life and produce endurance and produce lasting character to produce hope. And we know that hope will not make us ashamed. That hope was secure because of the work of God in us by His Spirit. Do you see how God's work through us is linked to His work on us? Because of what God has done in the Holy Spirit, our hope has meaning. And even our sufferings and challenges can have meaning in Christ. God works through us not only by bringing hope, but He also brings courage. You see, we can hope, but often we feel a bit like the cowardly lion. We come to church with a brave face. We go to Bible study with our eyes steeled. But in our hearts, we have a flutter. We wonder what the future will bring. We wonder how our children will grow up. We wonder 
how our health will hold up. We wonder what will happen to our nation. And sometimes when push comes to shove, we can't keep that brave face. We break down. But you see, the work of God by His Spirit in us can give us great courage. It can strengthen us to face the day. And the first way it does that is by making us not ashamed. You see, courage begins not with us, but with the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we have courage by knowing that we will not be ashamed before God because of the work of Jesus. Paul says he has full courage that now, as always, Christ will be honored. He has a clear conscience. This very moment, as always, Christ will be honored because of the work of God in His midst. You see, once we know we are right with God, everything else pales in comparison. When the King of the universe has declared us not guilty because of the work of Jesus, does it really matter what the guy down the street thinks of our lawn? Or our car? No. It gives us boldness, courage, boldness of speech, Paul says. It gives us an ability to know that we are right with God. That the cornerstone Peter talks about in 1 Peter 2.6 is laid for us that we might not be ashamed. Are you ashamed this morning? Do you hide that in the corner of your heart? Are you concerned that you don't really know your place in the world? Are you worried what others will think about you continually? You know, God can take away that shame. God can give you meaning and value and honor. The King of the universe sent His Son to die on a cross that His people might have true honor and meaning and might never be put to shame declared not guilty for all time. This is the work of God through us. It brings courage and boldness, and it brings a concern for what He is doing right now. God's work is found on us in declaring His will, in bringing His provision. It's found through us in giving us hope and courage to face the day, But His work is also found in us. Look with me at the end of verse 20. Paul says, I will not be ashamed because Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You see, God works in us by bringing true meaning and honor to our life. Paul is saying his life has real meaning. He knows why he's here. He knows why he was created, to bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't have to search for meaning. He doesn't have to go off someplace and find himself. No. Paul finds his meaning in looking at the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, part of his meaning is found in service to Christ. Christ will be honored in my body, Paul says. Now, that sounds like an odd phrase. What does that mean? How is Christ honored in my body? Does that mean that I need to renew that membership subscription to the gym and pump some iron? Make sure that I only eat 
non-fatty foods and stay away from potato chips? No. What it means is, is that Christ will be honored in a very concrete way. Not in some vague fashion, but in my life, in my day-to-day. As I wake up, I am to think, how can I honor Christ? As I go to work, I need to think, how will what I do honor the Lord Jesus Christ? As I speak to my spouse, how will my words honor Christ? As I teach my children, how will my words honor Christ? And this is true in any circumstance. You'll notice that Paul doesn't say, in my body on a good day, in my body when I feel well, in my body when I have advanced notice. No. You see, Christ is to be honored in every circumstance, in plenty and in want, in freedom and in chains, in life and in death, Paul says. Have you thought about honoring Christ even in your death? Have you thought about how your life will be played back for others? Not to your glory, but to the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you thought about what they will say? How you serve the Lord? How you held to the faith? How you finished well? You see, Paul has that even in his mind. Because his focus is not upon himself, but upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he knows that true meaning is found in Jesus himself. Not in things or in circumstances. This very famous verse, to live is Christ and to die is gain, is almost so well known to us that we skip over its meaning. But Paul is actually making a play on words here. You see, there was a Greek proverb, almost the equivalent of, have a nice day. Or just do it. And it went like this. To live is good. Living is good. As opposed to, of course, dying. And in Greek, the word for good is Christus. You can see how that sounds very much like Christus. The word that Paul uses here. You see, Paul's trying to the attention of his readers who were Greek, who would know this proverb. He says, listen, it's not living that's good. It's Jesus that's good. And Jesus makes life good. And Jesus can even make death good because meaning is found in Jesus, not in the things that are around us. You see, that's why he could say death is gain. The Christian doesn't say death is gain because I won't get another head cold. The Christian doesn't say death is gain because I won't wake up with a backache. The Christian says death is gain because I will be forever with Jesus Christ. And all of the meaning that is found in life is found in its fullness in being with Him beyond death. You see how God works that in us by faith, uniting us with our Lord. He also works in us, finally, by bringing glory. That's the word that is used here in verse 20. He says, 
Christ will be honored. That word for honored means glorified. It actually means magnified. It can even be said made really, really big. You know what I mean when you talk about something that's really big? One of my boys was telling me a couple of weeks ago about a restaurant that was good. And I said, well, have you ever been there? And he said, no, I was talking to my friend and he said they have a gigantic cookie. It's the biggest cookie you've ever seen. And of course, if a cookie's good, a gigantic cookie's even better. And describing it, you know, the phrases he was using. You see, that's what God wants us to think about the Lord Jesus Christ. To magnify Him in our mind and in our midst. Because you know, we cannot make Jesus any bigger than He is. One commentator puts it, I think, marvelously. He says, the only place that Jesus can be made bigger is in our hearts and minds, not in heaven. You see, Jesus is all in all, but He can be magnified in our lives, in our hearts, in our relationships. He is declared to be great. You see, Jesus is the subject of this sentence here. Paul does something that at least English grammarians don't like. If you have a writing teacher and you write a sentence in the passive, he was bitten by the dog. They will say, no, 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 you should change that to the dog bit him. You use the active voice. You don't use the passive voice. It it grabs you more. So why doesn't Paul say, I will magnify Jesus? He might even sing the song. I will magnify the Lord. It's because Paul wants Jesus to be the subject. He wants the focus to be on our Lord, so much so that he can't even bring himself to say, I will magnify Christ. He says, Christ will be magnified. This means that all of our actions must point to Christ. You see, if Christ is to be honored in our lives, if Christ is to be magnified in our relationships, it must be more than the preacher who talks about Jesus. Your work must speak of Christ. Your marriage must speak of Christ. Your family must speak of Christ. Even your schoolwork must speak of Christ. You see, Jesus is to be magnified in our midst, and that is the work of God in our lives, to show forth the Lord Jesus Christ. We are as lighthouses that God puts a burning light in to shine out to the world so that others might see His Son. Paul is encapsulating in his description here One of the mottos of John the Baptist, where he said, Jesus must increase. I must decrease. Are you ready to see that kind of work in your life? Are you ready to surrender all of your glory and worth for the glory of Christ? Do you desire to see Him magnified in every aspect? Of your life. This is true meaning for the Christian. This is true honor. To have someone walk up and see you and say, 
Surely you've been with Jesus. This is true honor in the church of the living God.